Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. As a consumer myself, right, the world is, is full of, um, of light and entertaining options. In fact, there's a surplus of them. Everywhere you look is something that, um, that attempts to, to dull uh, the reality of realism, say. And, uh, you know, uh, that's why there's streaming digital content. People can watch Netflix, and they do, instead of read. Uh, I, I do think that if you're going to, you know, put pen to paper or type on a screen or however you come up with, you're going to make a book these days. Um, it has to be, it has to be serious in that way because, um, you know, the serious might be, the, it's not sexy to say, but the serious might be the last readout for literature in, in this, in this era. Um, uh, you know, you kind of can't convince me that, 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 uh, that almost every other form literature has invented, um, TV doesn't do, um, decently well. You know, certainly the light entertainment that I like to read, the detective stuff, you know, and the thriller stuff uh, is, 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 is fairly fluent on screen. I think it's the, it's, the, it's the seriousness and it's the pain and it's the thinking through pain, not thoughtless pain, but the thinking through pain that, 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 that literature um, still and will always offer. And I think can also help to, uh, in a sense, rejuvenate literature. I mean, it sounds paradoxical, but it gives a second youth to literature in the time when, uh, when, frankly, not many people are reading at all. One cannot refute what one has not thoroughly understood, the incisive and straight-up words of German-American philosopher and writer Leo Strauss. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is the nature of Jewish identity? How does Europe and the wider world view Judaism, the Jewish state and the new Israeli order? And can metaphor fully explain reality? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American novelist and short story writer Joshua Cohen, whose latest book, Moving Kings, has just been published by Fitzgeraldo Editions, where Joshua writes, At least in America, if you lose your house, you can get it back from the bank. In Israel, you lose it to the rockets. So, what is the meaning of homeland to the Jewish people? And how is Jewish-American literature tackling the big political questions? My name is Joshua Cohen. I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey, United States, and I live in New York City. And... uh, I'm the author of Moving Kings, which I believe is my, I think, sixth book. And uh, it tells the story, uh, really a few stories centering around a moving company in New York City uh, and uh, and in the outer boroughs. That, in the wake, really, of the financial crisis begins making more of its money off of eviction moving. Uh, It's run by a man named David King, an American Jew. And uh, following a heart attack, he wants to sort of reconnect with his family. He sailed with his daughter and uh, ends up bringing over from Israel uh, a cousin of his to work for his moving company. And the cousin then brings over a person that he had served with in the IDF, in the Israel Defense Forces. And 
the two young Israelis who were just out of the army after finishing their compulsory service now find themselves in, in New York City and environs um, performing work that, that, that reminds them of some of the work that they did uh, while enlisted, which is to say coming into homes of unsuspecting and largely defenseless people and um, removing their possessions and uh, relocating the uh, because that's what is repossessing the homes and uh, moving the people on out. And uh, there are also a few moments, I hope, of levity and even a little bit of sex. So it's not, or maybe it is as depressing as all that. So, Susan, I guess I'll, I'll read a, a passage from the book. Um, this passage is really uh, before they, they, they serve they find themselves in service in the Gaza War, in the, in the most recent Gaza War, uh, they are um, guarding the border checkpoints, uh, Yoav and Uri. Uh, and so this is a section set in, uh, in Israel or in Palestine, or on the border between the two, uh, amongst these two young soldiers before, they, uh, before they're discharged and they find themselves in New York. The field days followed in procession indomitably hot stretches of sentry duty spent just clenching bowel and bladder and greasing your gun, the perspiration coursing as you stooped, drooped, and melted. The country was melting. The borders shrunk, expanded, kept being moved until you found yourself trapped between where yesterday's had been and tomorrow's would be, until you yourself had become the border dug into sand along roads writhed by rebar and garbled with barbed wire. This was a checkpoint between Israel and a land Palestinian called Palestine and Israelis called Judea and Samaria because Jews can't agree on anything, they can't even agree with themselves, and so both names were used. Formerly called the West Bank, but was located just east of the country, about 40 billion of the old Canaanite cubits in psychological distance, but also only 40 kilometers as the rockets fly from where the rockets were flying from Gaza. But here you saw none. Here you heard none. You just were. Put here like you've been put here on Earth to reinforce the patrols, given all the recent unrest and skirmishing. Really well done on the book, uh, Joshua. I have to say it's a fascinating read, very uncomfortable in parts, very thought-provoking in other parts, and also quite uh, funny and, and, and warm in other parts, which was an unexpected delight given uh, the seriousness of the topic. I might throw you a big wide-open question to kick things off, and sure, we can play it by ear from there. What does it mean to be a Jew in America today? What does it mean for you and your family? Oh, man, once you start... Once you start speaking for your family, especially on the radio, that's when you get into trouble. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think what does it mean to be something has to has to really do with who's you know who's doing the labeling. You know, I mean, I think it's it's very different um, to proclaim yourself anything uh, uh, than it is to be accused of being something or someone. You know, to say I'm a Jew. Is, uh, is a freedom of America, uh, uh, you know, protected thus far. Um, but, you know, my family came from places where um, that was a label that was applied to them. And some members of the family, no matter how much they tried to disavow it, couldn't 
couldn't necessarily convince the powers that be that uh, that the accusation is wrong, or that maybe it shouldn't be an accusation in the first place. So I think you know I think this is this is the double-edged sword of all identity. It's 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 always a question of in what environment you're in, whether it's an environment which you can claim uh, a certain ethnicity or religion or or, or, or your identity with pride, or whether um, it is something that's applied to you and and then used to. Um, to, in a certain way, foreclose your options, foreclose your possibilities of life. Um, uh, yeah. Do you think it's possible, though, to shake off, let's say, the religious family that you're brought into? And what I mean by that is the broad family that you, you're brought into, whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, um, a Jew, whatever you are, that you can, um, do you think it's easy or how difficult do you think it is to kind of move out of that? Um, and do you think it always hangs somewhere there around you? Oh, I think it always. I think it always hangs there. I mean, I I think that, you know, when people tend to leave the environments in which they were brought up, especially the, the the religious and cultural environments in which they were brought up, they tend to leave it at a at a you know at a pretty young age where you sort of don't necessarily realize how much um, how much of one's life is invested in these um, in invested in these in these cultural or religious institutions. Or these traditions, uh, you know. I mean, I, I stopped believing in God when I was around 13 years old. You know, around the age in which I was forced to perform a public, <laughs> a public uh, announcement of a public proclamation of my belief in God is right about the time that I stopped believing in God, and that was when I was 13 around my bar mitzvah. And uh, you know, but as I get older, uh, it's impossible not to see my face age and change and become the face of uh, of my father and my grandfather. It's sort of impossible to to not notice uh, certain hand gestures or certain um, ways of speaking that uh, that slip through me unconsciously. There's, so to say that I can you know throw off or disavow if I wanted to throw off or disavow all of it. it, 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 it I, I think it's impossible because it resides in the body. I think it resides in the body. And I think it resides very deeply in the mind and forms the syntax of our thoughts. I'm just wondering what prompted the novel and what were the big questions that you were asking yourself because you've pre- you present a pretty um, hefty political, fairly hefty political punch to your writing and you've, you present to the reader um, a harrowing eviction narrative with drawing clear parallels between Palestine and Israel. So I'm just wondering what were the big questions you were asking yourself? Well, I mean, I was, I was asking myself how, how cities were changing, specifically how New York was changing and the real idea of gentrification. And I was asking myself, what you know, what is the difference between gentrification and uh, uh, and other forms of of, of usurping territory? I mean, I wasn't trying to uh, draw a, a you know direct analogy and direct you know correlation between the occupation of Palestine and uh, and the gentrification of New York City. I mean, that would be ludicrous. Mm. Uh, it would be it would be it would be insulting to people who truly suffer in Palestine, who are you know who are being you know murdered more actively in the streets, let's say. But uh, uh, but but there was some rhyme there. There was some rhyme about 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 streets changing and about the disenfranchised being pushed out that I wanted to look at. Also, frankly, I, I wanted to analyze a certain phenomenon of the year abroad, uh, which is you know really this you know we think about it as a gap year maybe for for people who grow up in in in, in countries where there isn't compulsory military service. But in Israel, there's long been a tradition of of after you serve when you get out. Um, go abroad for a year. And then my original idea wasn't to write about necessarily Israel, but about Israelis in the world, and to track 
the entire squad for a year abroad uh, at the conclusion of their service. You know, some would go to Asia, some would go to Europe, some would go to Africa. And uh, and in a sense, I wanted to kind of show the idea of, of leaving Israel, you know, this, this, this leaving Zion, this, 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 this land that was dreamed of, you know, for, for, for millennia, and, and the idea of, 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 of forsaking it. I mean, you know, we still speak when you go to Israel, you make Aliyah, you grow up. Right, but to leave Israel, you become a Yerida, you descend. And I wanted to write about these people who descend from Zion and never, and never return. You know, um, the the real tradition of this gap year comes around in the aftermath of the '67 war, which is you know 50 years ago last year, when Israel's military power is really you know first time regarded as supreme, its economy is strength, strengthening, and this is the first time then that a, a relatively large cohort of um, of Combat hard Israeli born Israelis was able to go abroad, was able to afford to go abroad. And, you know, you should remember that this is a country you can't really drive out of, you have to fly. And, uh, and, and so it was really kind of knowing that history and then living for a while throughout Europe, especially in Berlin, which is actually, you know, where I'm calling you now from or where you're calling you now, you know, which is a place where over 10,000 young Israelis are here. It's the largest Israeli population outside of Israel. And, uh, and trying to figure out what this means. This this um, this flight of um, of young Israelis who should be economically secure, who should who have all these professional opportunities, but find themselves alienated from um, from their governance. Do you think your average Jew living in America worries about what's going on in Israel or the conflict between Palestine and Israel? Like, do you think it radars it, it? You know, it's a big issue for them, or is it just something that they see in the news and go, yeah, yeah, yeah? Like, how significant is it? Oh, I think it's profoundly significant. I think I think there are certain Jews, and not just in the United States, but all over the world, uh, uh, who you know are not only concerned about Israel qua Israel, but also use it as a barometer for international anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, they're as interested in the situation of Israel as they are about press coverage with Israel, because for them it is the ultimate, you know, it's the ultimate measuring stick, let's say, for um, for popular opinion among Jews in the world. I mean, you know, so much work has been done on, you know, on the left to sort of sunder the, 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 the equation between um, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, but the truth of the matter is that the truth of real lived life is most Jews look at, you know, Israel as a way to gauge their own acceptance and acceptance of, and, and, and the behavior of of, of 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 Israel and the international response to the behavior of Israel is something that the Jews sort of self-apply to their own lives and their own communities and the security of their own lives and their own communities. David King, one of your main characters, um, was a very interesting guy to read. And, um, you know, it's he's kind of funny in one way and you could see how women and different types of people around him could be amused by him or entertained by him. But his moral radar or his, or his moral compass isn't too strong. And he, he doesn't even seem to question some of the um, more murkier areas that his business leads into. Um, he takes a business trip, well, sort of a business trip, but touches base with family in Israel. And... Um, He's, you know, he's quite paranoid when he arrives and he goes and visits his, um, his, um, his cousin Dina. And what's so interesting is that they're, you know, the, the blood ties, they're, they're first cousins, yet they look at the world in entirely different ways. They're both Jews, they're both from the same family, but their ideas on responsibility and who and what uh, they are and what they should be are so, so different. It makes for fascinating reading. Oh, thank you. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't, 
You know, I mean, I, I, I see how David King can be seen to lack a moral compass, but I, I actually see him as somebody who, um, who feels, who feels like no time for, for, for morality. I mean, he's a, he's a man who, who works and who is self-made. And so in, in many ways, he, he, uh, morality, he sees, uh, both through his own personal history and through the lens of the history of his people as a, um, as a luxury. Uh, morality is is a bourgeois luxury in his mind, and though he's you know made money, he can never get out of his head you know what has um, you know what has gotten him there. I mean, this is you know this is the the, the his plight I, I or his condition, let's say, is something that in my mind is very much linked actually to to um, you know not just the tradition of 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 of, um, of someone like like Shylock, right? In, in Shakespeare, we have this idea. Of you know uh, why is this Jew in this uh, this so-called moral Jew in this so-called immoral profession? And it's because you know that was the only job that he could have. That was the job that he was forced into. In fact, you know, a Jew couldn't own land, couldn't practice certain trades. He had to be a money lender. Um, and and in a lot of ways, the the dirtier jobs in the states, uh, uh, you know, were, were were things that were done by immigrants and things that are still done by immigrants and uh, and people who don't necessarily have um, the time or the luxury for moral distinctions, and uh, and I think that David has internalized this ethos, and uh, uh, to such a degree that he that um, he's become addicted to it. You write something very interesting about uh, David's relationship with his homeland, Israel. You write something on the lines that his relationship was between his delusion and spirituality, between his ignorance and soul. And so at the bottom, that in that bloody chamber beneath the skin, it was a reckoning with death. I thought that was very interesting. I'm just wondering, what were you trying to do there? Oh, I was trying to, I was trying to uh, uh, speak about these, um, these ideas when um, when metaphors become reality, I mean, so much of this book is taken up with uh, uh, with you know correspondences or allegories or parables, right? The idea of drawing these these um, these these lines, let's say, or suggesting these these metaphors. Uh, again, not strict analogies, but but metaphors and and rhymes. And I think that um, that for David King's experience of Israel or Zionism, whatever you want to call it, um, it's, it's really that, uh, that twofold existence, which is to say, you know, Israel was a, uh, was a dream or a poetic conceit, right? Zion was a, was a poetic, was a rhetorical device of, of poetry for millennia when it was not, a polit- when, it, when there was no chance of it becoming a political reality. And then suddenly one day something happens, which, um, which happens, you know, uh, very infrequently in this world, which is that um, metaphor becomes reality, it becomes physicalized. Something that was, you know, a rhetorical device, something that existed in the world of poetry, prayer, and longing suddenly acquires borders, a military, uh, an economy, and, uh, you know, and a mass transit system. And I think that, that you know, in his mind, just like the mind of, of almost any, almost everyone who was uh, Jewish who's around at the time of Israel's founding, which is, you know, fairly recent, um, Still has a degree of that of that of that shock or that surprise that uh, that 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 this um, ideal that's embedded so deeply in um, in 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 the Bible and Torah and 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 in, and in and all you know Jewish homiletic writings like you know actually is a place to which you could buy a ticket mm-hmm. and actually is a place where airplanes land 
and actually is a place where um, men and women do business. And I think that uh, I think that 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 double life um, is something that uh, uh, will always uh, be present in the uh, in the imaginations of people of David's generation. And there's sort of you a dissonance I mean, there, isn't there? Certainly, certainly, I think certainly as distinct from being present in the minds of Israelis for whom it's just home, for whom it's it's the place where they live. Tammy David's daughter hounds him on his um, politics and and arranging social views. And, you know, uh, at one stage they're talking about uh, the uh, Palestine-Israeli conflict and she, you know, she goes on saying it's all a criminal regime and she talks about, you know, Palestinian freedoms and she says, you know, that, you know, says that, you know, Israel is a rogue state and, you know, what she learned in NYU was that um, how, 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 how psycho Jews were. And it made me laugh in one way because it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny passage and, you know, there's a great energy between um, the father and the daughter and they're so, they're so different as people. But it does range, uh, you know, bring up some questions and some uncomfortable questions. And it got me thinking that, you know, a lot of different people reading this uh, this book, uh, reading Moving Kings, will have very different ideas about the book and what you're setting, what you're saying. Because for some people, what you're joking with is a very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope so. You know, I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, for me, for me, the, the, the essential question was really, you know, he pays for her to go to NYU so she can find out ways to hate them, right? I mean, they, they, there's a line to that effect in the book. I mean, their, their divide is not just ideological. Uh, their divide is, is, is age, is, is gender, is, is, is the idea that, you know, I worked very hard to earn you know, the $60,000 a year or whatever is the just amount of money it costs nowadays to send you to NYU so that you can turn around and condemn my way of life. Um, you can enjoy the money that I earned through doing things that you believe are immoral, um, you know, uh, uh, but if you really believe in it, you, you, would, uh, you would cut yourself off from me and not accept my help. I mean, that, that's, David's, that's David's perspective. I think that, that in terms of making people uncomfortable, I mean, I think that's what a book should do. I mean, again, like I keep on saying that I'm not drawing like a direct analogy between gentrification and occupation. What I'm doing is, again, you know, proposing this metaphor, proposing similarities in a sense to create a, maybe a text or a track for a reader. You know, how you respond to that analogy, I mean, sorry, how you respond to that set metaphor, whether you think it's a metaphor or you agree with that metaphor, will really determine your politics. I mean, I think if you think it's, it's preposterous, um, then, then, then you know there are elements of the book that will um, that will trouble you in certain ways. Whether you, if you agree with it wholeheartedly, there are also elements of the book that will you know challenge you in different ways. I mean, I'm I'm not interested in writing you know a political books where people are certain are mouthpieces for certain ideologies. I'm interested in 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 what it is within one family to feel um, to feel conflicted, to be conflicted, to be unable to stage a conflict because of certain dependencies, and to be unable to feel that you can live an individual life because it claims on your emotions, because it claims on your mind that um, that can't be that can't be shaken, whether because it's too shaming to shake, to, to shake them off, or whether because it's um, it's, it's economically unfeasible, or whether it's just uh, whether it's, it's love that sort of prevents you from from condemning. And and so I I you know it's, it's the human story in all of this that 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 interests me. Um, but and I don't mean that in a saccharine way. When I say human surgery, it's it's really the 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 way in which um, the family has to grow to include these conflicts 
and it becomes stronger through these conflicts uh, uh, because if it doesn't allow itself to include them and it doesn't allow itself to be strengthened by them, then the family collapses. How did you go about researching the story? Um, because, you know, you present quite uh, conflicting experiences between two of your um, your um, interned soldiers, the two boys who go off, do the service and then come back and we get memories of their service sprinkled in, sprinkled throughout the narrative, Yoav and Yuri. And um, I'm just wondering, did you talk to many soldiers or, or, or how did you go about it? I've travelled all across Palestine and Israel and, you know, depending on who you talk to, you get very different stories and very different experiences. So I'm just wondering how you pitched it all together. Well, you know, I drink a lot. So, uh, you know, and when you drink, you talk. Uh, and I've I, I, I spent an enormous amount of time in Israel. I mean, we went there almost every year growing up and then I lived there for different periods and you know, certainly talk to a lot of soldiers, um, and certainly I'm related to a lot of soldiers who actually spoke with me less than strangers, uh, which is an interesting, which is an interesting fact. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 also being involved, uh, uh, you know, somewhat self-servingly, admittedly, in the Occupy movement in New York, and 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 really going down to watch the. Um, these protests that formed in chains around the homes of people being evicted um, to try and prevent the, the police and Murphy's office and, 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 uh, and the eviction moving crews from coming in and then watching families' possessions being put out on the curb uh, and, and watching families, you know, deal with social services that then have to, like, you know, give them shelter. Or it, 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 was, it was seeing that as a rubbernecker. It was seeing that... Um, as, as an novelist sees that, which is to say, you know, uh, have my heart broken, but tell myself that when I go back to my own warm uh, or warm enough apartment by writing it, I will in some way, um, I don't know, immortalize my shame uh, and my disgust. Um, you know, a lot of it was also uh, really bringing up, I mean, you, you, you want to talk about a research technique, I mean, one of the great research techniques in terms of uh, in terms of talking to, to veterans of the IDF, or you know, people still serving the IDF and the reserves, um, is to bring up this, the subject of PTSD. I mean, I don't know that there there might not be a more explosive subject to broach with Israelis, especially with older Israeli men. You know, Israel is a country in which most everyone serves in the military. Uh, not to mention the intifadas, not to mention the rockets, which would suggest that almost everyone is or in danger or is in danger of being traumatized. Um, but the true danger comes when a disorder becomes so prevalent that it feels like an order, which, of course, is the Palestinian point of view. I think, you know, beginning to talk about whether these um, traumatic stress uh, situations exist in a country uh, that's compulsory military service is probably the best way to get someone to show you their true political face.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cowell. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American novelist and short story writer Joshua Cowan, whose latest book, Moving Kings, has just been published by Fitzgeraldo Editions. I asked Joshua about one of his characters, Yuri, a young man who has just finished his compulsory military service with the Israeli Defence Forces. Halfway through the book, Yuri starts having nightmares about his time on the West Bank. And it's almost as if Yuri's moral conscience is catching up with him. Yuri consults his local rabbi and the rabbi advises him, you can't stop being a soldier, just like you can't stop being a Jew. They're both permanent conditions for life. I asked Joshua about the responsibilities that come with ethnicity and whether it's possible that we can escape them. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I also think that there is a degree um, of, uh, of, of, of is particularly um, potent in America. Um, you know, there's this idea um, by which all, um, especially ethnic white Americans, let's say, you know, begin to... Um, valorize, begin to in some way become sentimental and nostalgic for their ethnic roots. I mean, you know, the Jews are just as bad as the Irish in this regard. I mean, you know, come to New York on St. Patrick's Day, which is, you know, a holiday you guys barely celebrate compared to the way you celebrate it, right? And and I think that there is this this sense of hyphenated identities in American life, you know, Jewish American, Irish American, Italian American, um, that uh, and I'm talking about white ethnic American life, you, you end up essentially creating out of these double identities a third identity. And this third identity is, is, is you know, not fully Jewish or fully Irish or fully Italian or Greek, or whatever, and not fully American. It's a third identity that you could call yearning or sentimentalism or nostalgia. And then you begin getting into politics by saying, you know, I yearn for the way things used to be, and suddenly you end up in Trump territory. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that these um, that these essentially searches for ethnic roots or these searches for, for some sort of identity, right, lead directly to um, reinvestigations of the past that condemn uh, any present as, as 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 decadent or declinist or, or declined, and um, and and lead to what I at least consider um, bad politics. But I suppose all nostalgia ends in unreality. So by by definition, you're heading into dangerous territory. Yeah, I do. I do. I I I I, I do believe that. It's very tough for. I mean, I think that's difficult for all people to take. But I'm being selfish here and saying, as a novelist, it's very difficult because you know a novelist in many ways thrives on memory. It thrives on on these ideas of recapturing youth or recapturing you know origins in a certain way. You know, every other novel is like a quest for the past, a quest for the roots, you know? And and I think that once these these quests are sort of transposed from the world of art to the world of, 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 of political action, you begin um, you begin getting into real trouble. And that was one subject that I, I really wanted to kind of broach with this book. I mean, there's no coincidence that the book opens at a Republican fundraiser out in the Hamptons, right, where... where you know, David King is out of his element a little bit, but but he he wants to be among these people. Not just wants to be among people because he wants their patronage, but he wants to be among these people because he feels you know politically aligned with them, and uh, uh, and really where they match up. You know, you can say they match up on on you know 
questions of taxation. You know, you could say they match up in you know in, in foreign policy goals, whatever. Uh, but the real place where they where they match up is is, is this sense that um, the world used to make more sense. The world used to um, be better. The you know everyone knew their place. Everyone knew what was expected of them. And uh, and that 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 that's been deeply deeply problematic. And and yet and yet it's it's, it's deeply problematic. And yet it's the um, it's in many ways the exact thing that the rabbi you mentioned is 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 is, is Kellen Uri. It's essentially you know know your place in the hierarchy, know where you are in in you know in the military. You know there's a chain of command. You you you, you don't question. You follow. And if you follow. Uh, then you will always have a home. Then you will always have a place with us. You will always have a family with us. And uh, and so it, 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 I tried to kind of show how it plays out, um, how that sort of um, traditionalism and that sort of hierarchical uh, tradition really plays out in, in the family, in the military, in political life. But Joshua, we're all engaging with that um, narrative to some degree or that tradition because, you know, we're all, um, you know, conforming and, if you will, to certain expectations and following certain types of typical lines, whether you're, you know, whether it's a class thing, an educational thing, a job thing, whatever it is, and that we're all participating in these very formulated social systems. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, but I wanted to... But I, but, but, but I also wanted to, you know, draw some separation here, you know, that, that you know, uh, uh, the tradition in which I really feel uh, that I'm writing, you know, uh, is, 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 is the, the, the American Jewish tradition, let's say, Bellow and Roth, who, you know, who were essentially saying that, um, that despite the greatness, I mean, this is Bellow more than Roth, but they both kind of approach this, and they're saying despite the greatness or the great idealism of of pluralistic democracy, you, you can never truly shake the demands of your blood or the delusion of the demands of your blood. Uh, you know, the, the tradition is always there and calling to you and, and promising to grant you purpose and grant significance to your, you know, capitalist life. And, uh, and every now and again, this inclination, this notion leads, you know, a personal realm and, and, and becomes very public and begins to, you know, endanger the public. And, uh, and so I kind of wanted to speak about these things that we kind of must acknowledge as, as having impact on our, on our lives personally in a very different way than they impact our lives um, in pluralistic democracies in which we all have to kind of live with one another and share, or should share. The last chapter in the book you subtitle Another Occupation 